Welcome to yet another edition of the Pro Video Coalition PVC News Podcast. This is our, uh, our um, what's the word we're using for? Our semi-weekly, our sometimes weekly uh, PVC News Podcast. We were, this is the, I think the fifth episode, the last episode from last week was a little bit um, slow to come out because our editor was busy with an event, but here we are. And I'm joined by uh, Mr. Gary Adcock up in the Chicago area. Gary, how you doing? Hello, Scott. Good, sir. How are you doing? How's your, how you, how's life in Nashville? It's uh, it's wonderful, and I thank you for joining us again, and as well, uh, Damian Allen, who is uh, our regular here on the other end line out in uh, Fiery, California. Yeah. So, Gary, is it uh, is it frozen over there yet? No, it's it's still above freezing. Um, it's kind of uh-huh. gray and overcast today, so. We're hitting 29 in Nashville on Friday night, so we will be glad for It's Yeah, it's supposed to snow on Halloween. So God, it's insane. Wow. Yeah. All right, speaking of scary things, um, big news of the week was uh, Red Hydrogen One phone, program dead, Janard's retiring. Um, now, Gary, you have and you own in your possession, you could probably even put your hand on it right now, an actual living, breathing Hydrogen One. I I do. I I. I was one of those people that believed in it. Um, and I wasn't a red guy. I've never been a red guy. So it was one of those things that I never, ever thought about it that way. And and when they came out with a phone, I went, okay, they're definitely making a jump to the next platform. And I and I bought in. Um, I'm, and I admitted it in the article I wrote on PVC. It's like, yeah, I got it and I believed and, and I lost. Because that's what technology is about sometimes. You, you choose one and you go with it and it doesn't necessarily do what you want it to do. So you have to think about those kinds of things. So. Well, I really hoped it would be a hit and work because the uh, what they were trying to do with it, with the modular system and, and being able to make it so much more than a phone, seemed absolutely perfect for our phones these days because they are so much more than a phone. So what well, what went wrong, you think? I mean, I, I, we know well, it came out I, with... with outdated specs but beyond that well it was a year out of date it wasn't just kind of out of date i mean the 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 chipset that came out in the original hydrogen one was was already a year old when it shipped which is kind of rare for phone technology people who who live in the kind of phones that we use now with it use them for everything i mean their cameras their communicators their there are contact with reality for a lot of people and and i was the same way as you were scott i wanted that modular technology to be so much more and i knew a lot of the people that were involved in it i mean i had been involved with the element technica guys so i knew how they were thinking about 3d and i was i was part of the 3d generation so i really really enjoyed it and i thought the technology could grow i really did and and i still do think there's there's parts of it they could they could use in other applications but it was just interesting to me that they they went through all of that and then you know a year went by and the old modules came out and basically all you could buy for it for it was a case that didn't really advance the project any and and they found out that you know the pinouts they were going to do that connector was no longer going to be accessible to them i think that's what i was told hmm. um and and it's one of those things that you you work on technology and sometimes you win and sometimes you lose and they've been really lucky being on the front end of it. They just didn't have the money and the muscle to be able to do it on, on a phone when you're talking about the only way to make it profitable is millions of units. Well, you know, do, you, do, you think, do you think Jim Janner just got tired too? I mean, like, obviously he's, he's saying he's retiring. And uh, do you think he, he just like, wow, this is, this, to get this to actually go somewhere is going to take so much effort? Uh, you know. uh, your guess is as good as mine, Damien. I don't know. Um, I, I mean, look, not, you can't really fault the guy. He's done some pretty amazing stuff. Those guys well, yeah, have really done, and, had an incredible careers. And, and I still remember my first contact with Jim ever. I was actually at the HVX 200 launch, and I was there working for Panasonic wow. on the launch of that camera. And Jared Land was one of the other people there. But the Panasonic guys actually had me talk to Jim on his phone and he called me up from his cell phone, which I still have the number for. And it's one of those things that's just really interesting. We had a, you know, a 25 or 30 minute conversation uh, on, you know, workflow and everything else on tapeless. So he was way ahead of the curve and always was. And, and, uh, you know, I was one of those people who got burned by reds in the beginning with the changing codecs and, and software builds and, you know, sensor issues and, gee, nobody could see 4K and we're shooting 4K and you know, you're <laughs> seeing the errors in post that you've never seen before. Um, so I was kind of leery on the camera side. 
But what they've done with the camera technology now, I mean, Monstro Helium Gemini are as good as any camera on the market. And the workflows around particularly, you know, what LightIron did for Panavision have totally defined that. And we, and it's a camera system that's that's evolved to a truly professional product in, in a period of time that people didn't think about. But with all the problems Red <clears throat> Red One had in its early part of its life, it still did some incredibly amazing, amazing things, even with those problems. Would you would Yeah, you as say? long as you could Yeah, I mean the Red One was was begat with failures. I mean, it overheated, the media didn't work. I mean, there was one issue early on, whereas if you plugged a CF card, which is what it was writing to at the time, if you plugged a CF card into a Mac, the Mac software would overwrite the directory in such a way that the cards were no longer valid. Well, I'll tell you this. I mean, uh, Nashville had a oddly disproportionately large number of red ones early on in its life. And there were many country music videos shot on that thing early in its day, and, and even with the problems, it it could do what it was supposed to do. Um, I remember, uh, you know, you had the, the Scratch system, and then Quantel got to where they could support the, the R3D codecs, and, and I think with even with all its problems, it, it it owes, we owe so much to that camera pushing pushing us forward, and I, th and I think that's what, I guess that's kind of what maybe the hope was with the hydrogen, that it would push the phone's you know, into somewhere that the, the phones currently aren't. Because it seems like we're kind of just, you know, they're just incremental updates every year. They just get a little bit better, a little bit better. And that, that know, might have been is, amazing. The thing that surprises me about phones is, like, we have the compute power there right now. And I'm a little surprised. Maybe they are, but I'm, I'm surprised no one is working on some kind of uh, really high-end or really uh, solid wireless display technology so you you know you get into your office you just stick your phone on a pad and it becomes you know you have a thin client there basically a, a screen yeah. and a keyboard because to me now you've got you're, you're taking your computer wherever you go with you and it, it seems like the power's there i'm always a little confused as to why whether it was just a pure accident that apple splintered ios from os 10 because that always seems like a bit of an arbitrary thing that you can't run desktop apps on these things, on iPads and things like that. Well, but, but now with Catalina, you can actually plug your iPad in and have it as an extension. Of it. Yeah, no, that's cool. That's actually and, and, very and cool. There, there's, there's actually more issues related to the wireless transmission of video than people even dream about. It's one of those things I dabble in for one of my clients, Teradek, and it's kind of interesting to look at how you know, to be able to take what it takes to deliver a 4K HDR signal, even at 422, is pretty impressive. Yeah, but for, for something that's near-filled, I mean, I, I have a pretty yeah. flawless system just with an Oculus Rift with the TP-Link and that thing, TP-Cast, and that thing is amazing. So I would imagine if it was just like, well, like we're talking about a few inches of basically going from a pad to a phone. But, you know, I'm sure they're working on it. I'm sure they're not stupid. <laughs> Yeah, they're not. And, and but you look at the technology that's in phones, and it's like I like to remind people, you know, this is the it's crazy. Uh, yeah. You know, 2019 was the 50th anniversary of man landing on the moon, and we carry more computing power <laughs> in our pocket than NASA had in its entire facility. You know, around the world to put man on the moon, we carry that much computing power in an iPhone. It is amazing. 10. So I'm not, you know. um, Daniel. I'm not sure what I, you're asking about there. So are you saying that it would be your phone would take the place of like your iMac in your house, that you would be able to set it yeah. down and have and use a keyboard with it and have it displayed to a bigger screen, and you just wouldn't even need an iPad or another personal computer. Right. I mean, we have this the the compute power there, even the graphics capability. Yeah. So if you could hand that off uh, through some wireless protocol, then now you've got one device that goes everywhere with you. I mean, the yeah. thing is, most well, of your data storage is in the cloud now, anyway. Yeah. So. Why, why, uh, why, yeah. why would it have nah. to be even wireless, though? Could it be? Could it? Could it be a dock like a charging dock? You could jack or, in, well, but I just think for lazy consumers, it's like uh, you, yeah. you well, it's just drop it on a pad, have it charge, and connect in the same breath. Well, I mean, we don't we all do that in our conference rooms and app with Apple TVs now. Yeah, and and some of the technology on Apple TV, and one of the things that a lot of people don't understand about Apple TV is that if you have an app on them and you have a number of Apple TVs synced into a master account, they all are in sync within milliseconds of each other. It's scary, but I've actually run apps on Apple TVs in multiple countries, and and the signal because of the way it buffers signals and everything else is pretty much real time and. 
universally across the uh, across the planet. And that's pretty impressive when you think about that, wow. that you can actually key an application across multiple you know, time zones and everything else and have it act within milliseconds mm -hmm. of one another. Well, what you know, I, I frequently uh, just uh, link into, I've got a 20 core server in my home studio and I frequently just uh, log straight into that uh, screen sharing. There are a few problems sometimes with uh, driver APIs and things, but for the most part I can launch Maya, something like that and work quite happily remotely off it's, it. There's definitely a, a lot of crazy tech there. Um, well, when, you, when you talk about um, around the world, Seems like I remember at some point earlier in the year uh, a little bit of a news piece about time code syncing via satellites, where anybody yes. in the world would get the exact same down to the frame uh, signal or whatever. I mean, that kind of seemed like, boy, what an amazing idea that would be. Well, that's simply 20, 2010. I mean, you know, start looking at you know twenty one ten, and you start looking at what's going on with IP technology and how they've separated the timing base using the same kind of timing that, that uh, financial transactions use. So it mm -hmm. works in milliseconds. Um, and, and that kind of timing is now, they've separated the video signal from the audio signal from the ancillary data. And now you can actually sync all of these from different locations. So you can pipe in separate real-time translations or real-time modifications of the visuals, the graphics, so they would come in in the proper language for the area you're transmitting to. That's that's the SMPTE side of all of this that's going to change what we think of in augmented reality. When that gets here for that and we can stream video, audio, and information as independent files that all sync at a specific time base at the user, that's going to change how we think of augmented reality. I mean, that's going to be my minority report when we look at it. Okay, but that's you're talking like next level stuff. What about uh, current level stuff where you've got 10 cameras set up, could they have a protocol built in where you just hit a button and they all see this satellite time code and they're jam synced? Uh, it's called NDI. I mean, NDI does that now. What's NDI? So you, NDI is, is the new tech uh, wireless technology for communicating between multiple devices in a facility. Um, it's an open source application that, that NewTek developed and released to the public. But it's actually a really cool protocol for you can control servers and timing and graphics and cameras and you know remote controls and everything else over a wireless connection. Is that something that camera manufacturers would have to build into the camera? It, they build the protocol in, and most of them have uh, okay. on the broadcast side. I mean, it's it's very very popular in the avid space. It's a real big deal with the Grass Valley and the Switcher guys because you're talking about newsroom automation. Yeah, and you can literally go in from an iPad and be able to change the graphic package, load in a package, type in somebody remotely, green screen somebody out, all in real time. That's cool over wireless connectivity. Well, that's a little bit like uh, the Timecode Systems UltraSync Blue uh, protocol, which they've been developing to work over uh, timecode syncing and pairing via, via Bluetooth, which brings us to right. another big story last week was uh, Atmos acquiring <clears throat> Timecode Systems, which was, a th I, I, I think, uh, I, you know, obviously it was a shock to me. I knew nothing about it, but then as I got to think about it, it kind of, it seems like kind of a natural fit for what could maybe take Atmos to, uh, to, the, to the next level. Well, I mean, you think about time coding. I, I've always been an ambient guy because on the pro side, ambient's the more common protocol. But time code systems allows that capability to be able to now we can have the recorders operate in sync with the, you know, the, the the camera devices. And it's been a it's been a problem since the early days of DV, where cameras would always start at zero and then keep time code and, and time code syncing and all of that. So I think what Atomos is doing is actually going to benefit, particularly the post side of things, by actually having accurate frame accurate time code mm -hmm. in the recorders. I mean that's that's all that's been the reason why a lot of recorders didn't work for a long time and why we hate GoPro footage and and those kind of things because you know every frame every clip starts at zero. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know the um I had a chat with uh Paul who uh, is the president of Timecode Systems at, N at NAB and I I was unaware of exactly how something like their UltraSync Blue worked, which is the that's the Bluetooth uh, you know the Bluetooth um 
time code generating device thingy. They use thingy as a technical term. But, you know, they, they had introduced this protocol that device makers could build easily, I think pretty easily built into their devices. And they had started being built into some of the audio recorders and they were working to get into more cameras. But the idea that that could go into the Atmos recorders, at, it's Atmo, Atmos, Atmos recorders, and... Um, <laughs> And you know, then, well, don't, don't they? They already have one unit, don't they? That they are they already collaborated with Timecode Systems yes. on. I think yeah, and I guess that's probably where they. I don't know. Maybe they, they said, thought, you know, "Let's this just, is great stuff. Let's just go ahead and, and, and just apply. buy the company." But I love yeah. the idea that every uh, Atomos recorder, maybe in the future, would have this built in, and then if you had two of them on set, you know, maybe I don't know, you hit a button and they, and they go together. But I think what excites me about is one who does multicam editing and loves good timecode. Is the fact that this may this this just uh, new uh, joining of these two companies may bring us something new, something different we we, we don't have yet. And I, I well, hope. we think what's going to do it's going to bring back the the control that you used to have in a Genlock system. I mean, if you work in broadcasters, yeah. you Genlock everything, and yeah. you know that was that was common. And and you know you talk to people now, and they don't understand what Genlock is, but you start looking at the new generation of cameras. You look at the you know the FS7 II, you know the FX9, Canon C500 II, all of the cameras that are coming out now on the market, all except Genlock. And that's a real interesting proposition when you realize that the manufacturers are now understanding that we have to go back to, you know, locking cameras mm-hmm. together. And we used to do it in a frame base, you know, for fields. So you weren't on the wrong field when you did a, a transfer. But now they're now they're bringing it back so that the accuracy between edits is actually going to be something we've dreamed of yeah. for the last decade. Well, that's, I, that's one of the problems we have all the way around is just the fact that we have so, I mean, you know, it used to be that this stuff was so expensive that standards bodies could actually have a significant impact. You know, there are only so many people that could afford to play. And so you you would do at least, you know, get some kind of uniformity. Whereas now it's just even metadata, trying to get uh, metadata to travel down a pipe is a <laughs> miracle. You know, it, you know, it was the promise. And I still... Like even if I get metadata, like lens information, I almost never trust it because it's almost guaranteed to be wrong. You know, so that's the sort of stuff that um, anything like this, if we can actually get some, I, I do, I do think there's definitely a, a fatigue in the industry where people are finally going, look, I don't care who's right, let's just get something uh, consistent that mm-hmm. we can all agree on. Well, if you're sending time code wirelessly through like the uh, the the time code systems blue, you know, the ultrasync blue. I mean, timecode is a form of metadata. I guess there's no reason why you couldn't send other bits of metadata wirelessly between systems. Well, and, and, and it just depends on what the protocol is. And I mean, you know, yeah. um, not to bang on Apple, but ProRes doesn't do shit when it comes to metadata properly. And and it doesn't handle the files until they got to XQ. It didn't handle most of the, meta, most of the metadata tracks. And a lot of the secondary record formats, I mean, Cinema DNG and those, they're, they can't handle the metadata because they're chopping it up into files. Yeah. And you needed to maintain the metadata track, you know, the SMPTE 1024 or whatever it is, um, data stream. Um, you know, there's there's... It, it, in a 4K, you know, 6G signal from a camera at 30p, there's over 2,400, you know, there's there's 2,440 or whatever it is metadata tracks available. 2048 That's metadata tracks available in a in a 4K stream. So let's let me let me get on a soapbox about metadata for a minute. This promise of metadata has gone on forever. I remember reading a book that Philip, a little ebook Philip Hodgetts wrote years ago about about metadata, and and it, it seemed like it, it could be such a great a great thing. We opened up premieres uh, for years. The metadata panel in Premiere has had hundreds of fields that exist for whatever reason, but are useless because there's nothing, nothing ever in them. Um, you know, Blackmagic yeah. has has cameras now that you can tag, you know, good take and, and, and put a take number in as metadata, things like that. But we don't see that coming back into our shoots. When is this promise of metadata ever going to actually come to fruition? Well, I mean, one of the first places we saw it was in Final Cut Pro Ten. I mean, how it impl- implemented metadata in a way that we had never seen before was was revolutionary. Unfortunately, Apple did it with Final Cut 10 and they lost to the background that they needed for that. 
You know, there were so many people that, that myself included, that abandoned Final Cut because it was just so different and so unable to give me a professional output that I needed at the time. And 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 Adobe's no better. Adobe does what they want to do, and they're not reading everything. But the bigger problem is actually from the manufacturing side on the cameras that generate this stuff. Is that every manufacturer has its own dedicated place yeah. for metadata. Yeah. And I mean, you, you you know when you see the recorders, and it's like we're happy when the recorders can now read the same file name as the camera generates. That's like and 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 the time code matches between the recorder and and the, the camera. You know, those are big deals. But you know, you look at it, and the, and the system I go to instantly on this is Aries LDS and Zeiss's extended data. Um, the Zeiss's extended data based on Cook's I slash four, you know, uh, I slash technology. Um, that's kind of changed everything because that's actually now allowing to do things like um, uh, the line in the, you know, on the ground in a football game and to be able to do real time 3D renderings on set mm -hmm. for previs and things like that. And you're seeing a lot more of those kinds of issues. And I think once we get to get through the next step, the next generational step in augmented reality, I think even more of that's going to be there because now we're taking the, the you know, the, the the depth data and adding image to it in real time with our phones, you know, Project Aereo, Apple's AR, there's lots of Oculus. I mean, there's all, all, all of these platforms are going in that direction. And I think that, that what's happening is it's going to come out with the SMPTE side, where the SMPTE, you know, 2110 protocols for IP video are going to change a lot of that and allow a lot of this to actually function the way it's supposed to, because now it's not syncing at the, or the originating state, it's syncing at the, at the delivery state which is where it needs to be. And the drift is all compensated for in the transmission of all the different types of files. I think, I think one of the problems, Scott, to your point is, uh, I think the biggest problem is the human beings that get involved in the pipeline because uh, so little training and often the guys that are actually handling the DI process, uh, you know, taking, ingesting, and then creating different files for different vendors, things like that, they they often lobotomize the metadata in the process. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the number of times where I've worked on high-end feature films and I'm working on the visual effects and I know they have camera lens information. I know the metadata was there. I I know they must have shot uh, leaders, you know, with, uh, color charts and uh, all kinds of things. And I just, that stuff never shows up. And I can even be in the same facility where they're handling the DI where I can actually walk up and usually I just find someone that just really doesn't know what they're doing. I yeah. mean, they, they've been told, take this, run it through Resolve or run it through this program, spit out a bunch of EXRs. And as long as the color space is okay, that's more than you can hope for. And until we, we actually have people who know how to handle this, and even the tools, like I've had to inject metadata for applications that need oh. to read the information. It's it's like it's an you, you get these little hacked shareware apps that you try to inject metadata with and it's it's just it's ugly. So it's really ugly. Yeah, it sounds ugly. I was well, uh, and, and and you work in multicam. You know how nice would it be to be able to have all that multicam? Totally. Yeah. 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 I was uh, playing with uh, another piece of news from last week, uh, Kino, which is from Less Pain Software, which is the um, it's not really a media asset management piece of software, but it's a video. You know, uh, it's kind of a media asset manager. It's it is a video um, piece of software to tr look at, transcode, view, make notes on. Um, it's kind of an all-purpose Swiss Army knife for, for video, and they introduced 1.7, and they introduced um, uh, metadata back to Premiere CC uh, 2019 via writing an XMP file. So I was testing that out, and I saw the, the promise of metadata in that you could have someone logging your, your footage in Kino, and they could mark good takes, they could star, you know, give them star ratings, they could, you know, this is scene take, scene one, shot four, and you could do all that in Kino, and you could get that back to Premiere, but I saw things like, they're called keywords in one, and, they're, and they come into Premiere as tags, or vice versa. Or you've got um, a five-star shot, a five-star rating system in Kino, as well as a, a rejection, which comes from Final Cut, but there's no, you can get the stars into Premiere, but there's no mechanism for a rejection in Premiere. Or the shot is called shot in Kino, and it's called scene in Premiere. It's just, it's that thing where, if there was some kind of standardization that people could agree on, it would be so great. But standardization is always so hard for companies to agree on. I don't think 
we'll ever well, get it. Yeah. Time. Well, and you and you look at it, and it's like, well, you know, he's going to call a shot, but it's been called scene and take forever. Mm-hmm. So somebody didn't choose the right name, and somebody, you know, creating a new piece of software didn't match what the industry standard is. It's called a timeline, I, but they call it a project. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and, and you look at it. I mean, it's hilarious when you go back and use stuff with synced audio that's been properly time codes, properly slated and everything by the audio guys. And you pull it in and it cuts it into clips and you've got, you know, scene one, take one, scene one, take two. And it's all listed and it actually breaks the shots out like that. Changes the way you work when you understand that that's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, absolutely. So. Absolutely. It's, yeah, it's, um, I, I hope that, um, that stuff gets there. Uh, we may not ever get good metadata in DSLRs. And speaking of DSLRs, do we care that Canon introduced was it the uh, EOS 1DX Mark III? Did that did that happen last week? That happened this week, actually, or into last week. Yeah, 10-bit internally. That's actually the big part of it. It's the first time oh. Canon's doing 10 10-bit 422 internally. But they're not the first one to put 10-bit internal to a mirrorless or DSLR, are they? No, no, Sony did. So, and, and Fuji does it and, and, you know, the new Sigma FP does it. And that's a, that's a camera. I think it's going to surprise a lot of people when they get a look at it up close. Yeah. See, um, that one's getting a lot of, lot of, lot of buzz. Well, it's so tiny and which is why it's really, really high quality, but it's, I mean, it's the size of two decks of playing cards stacked on top of one another. It's that's about small. how big it is. It's very, very small. Um, Where's and, why has Canon not put 10-bit into their DSLRs? Because they don't want to cannibalize their pro market? Is that that's Pretty much, the yeah. conventional wisdom, I guess? But uh, yeah, that, that has always seemed to be a very arbitrary uh, line with Canon. I mean, the, the, the actual hardware doesn't seem to differentiate nearly so much as the price does, you know? So it, it is curious. Um, well, I mean, you look when 1D Mark IV came out the first time, and it was the first 4K camera, but it couldn't shoot more than 10 minutes at a time because it overheated. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, those are the kind of things that you don't think about. You know, That's oh, true. Everyone just this. gets excited when they see that gorgeous picture coming out of a affordable camera. And then, uh, yeah, then when you actually start shooting with one and go, ah, okay, guys, take a break. We're going to wait for the camera to cool down. That's <laughs> Which was the early red problems, yeah, you know, he, cameras yeah. would overheat all the That's time. That's why he had two of them on set. <laughs> one cool down, exactly. he shot with the, uh, could yeah. shoot, shoot with the other one. Well, and, and, and you know, and, we're, and this whole thing with, with, you know, full frame and everything else, and I look at, you know, what Hasselblad's doing, what Fuji did with the GFX100, which is a, a, an almost six-by-six six sensor, um, you know, and you start getting in a sensor that big that's taking that much data, and you can do things you didn't couldn't think of. I mean, I've seen, you know, a thousand percent enlargements from a GFX 100 that still you could see face detail on somebody that's a hundred yards away, and that's wow. kind of incredible when you realize the resolution that they're now getting out of these cameras in real time. And in some ways, that's the toughest thing about this whole market for consumers is it's almost like. Uh, you buy a camera, six months later, you feel like you're screwed. <laughs> the tech is just so radically shifting every month. You know, it's, uh, it's a and it crazy doesn't, and, game. It, and it doesn't have to be. You know, it's one of those things that I, I, I'm one of those people who didn't buy into the DSLR market until very recently. I mean, I had a couple of little ones. I had a GH4, which I liked but hated the images in it. It's like it was a nice camera and everything. I have a Fuji X-T3 now that I actually dearly love and it reminds me of my old film 35 millimeter cameras and can use all the lenses. That's what it's the other thing. The bigger problem I ran into is that you, I had all this great glass that I you know, owned yeah, for forever that didn't work on any of the new Canon cameras. I was a Canon guy in the, in the 80s. Yep. You know, I, I still have my, my photo ID from being in the early generation of Canon professional services. I look like I was, you know, some kind of criminal at that point. <laughs> well, speaking of, uh, you know, your cameras getting better through updates, um, you could just do like Apple did and release your new update to your new fancy iPhone X uh, or well, iPhone 11 Pro that the camera is not doing everything it can do. And then a few weeks later, release another update where you get quote unquote deep fusion and your camera suddenly becomes like a, like a brand new, a brand new camera, which I um, have said, said iPhone 11 pro. And I, I've been trying to test this deep fusion thing and I don't know how, I don't know how to, you need to go in someplace really dark. Well, I did that in, where I was working today in the suite I was working in today. And I did some, cause my understanding is you can't turn it on and off, but there's this weird little button in the upper left-hand corner where you can, um, like, activate. Almost, 
Yeah, like how is it going to expose for one second or two seconds or whatever? And I was doing some tests between two seconds and and, and zero seconds. You could definitely see them. It, it can definitely see into the dark much better. Um, do it on something where it's mounted on something. So you've got a, a really steady image. And that's when you're going to see the difference in that. Yeah, I've been playing with that too. The thing that amazes me about the 11 Pro is that wide angle camera. I love that's like that. scary. I, I did not think that I would that would make that big of a deal, but that is by far, I think, worth the cost of the, if you're, if you're going to buy a new iPhone 11, get the Pro to get that wide angle camera. Well, and, and I'm going to give a pitch to the guys at Filmic Pro. Um, they haven't released the multi uh, view version oh, of their yeah. app, of, of the app yet. Um, I've been trying to get my hands on it because I have a project that we least I'm going to do work on it. But it was one of those things that, that the Filmic Pro stuff gives you a whole lot more control over that camera. Yeah. And it's real interesting to see what a third-party app developer did. Now, the only problem is, is that the current app doesn't do stills. It only does video. And I wanted to do stills, too, because the wide-angle camera focus was like three inches. Well, that'd be, yeah, wow. that, if you're letting the camera shoot a still out of three three lenses at once or two lenses at once, that would be an interesting little uh, interesting. Well, little and, and, and their thing about shooting, you know, what I wanted it for was to shoot a wide angle and a normal shot simultaneously and to be able to cut between them yeah. for an Instagram piece. Um, you know, and it's it, that was what I was hoping for. Is that um, going to hit I, any bandwidth issues just recording that stuff? Well, and that's a good question. I I, I have a, a a note in to to Neil at Filmic Pro, and I haven't heard back from him yet. But it's my understanding that um, it won't necessarily work at full 4K resolution for each camera. That would right. be the the logical part of it. If you're shooting four cameras, you're getting 1080 in each camera view, which is recording as a 480 signal. You know, as as a forty ninety six yeah. signal, four K signal. Hmm. Um, I said four eighty. I'm at forty ninety six. Uh, but it, but that's going to be what it is. Is that you then get these four views in ten eighty for the web? I mean, because we're really not pushing four K to the web yet. Let's be real honest about that. I, I don't know anybody who's who's doing functionally doing that well, other than you know the streaming services. Well, and I think that's perfectly okay to give me four streams of 1080 or three streams of 1080, you know, out of you know, whatever you I want. Think it's, I, think it's totally, I think it's totally usable for that. I mean, most of the, you look at Facebook and some of the rest of the streaming services, it's 720. Absolutely. So. I mean, this, this idea, which is so common now that, it, you know, it's like, I got to have 4K, got to have 4K, got to have 4K. And it's like, well, no, you don't. You, you do not. But, and actually, I got to say that, you know, a couple of services that are doing the uh, machine learning 4K upreses. Yeah. It, it may well be that uh, that's the way to go. And, you know, when it comes down to it and you go, wow, I wish we'd actually shot this in 4K. So, yeah, just uh, run it through. <laughs> It'll look pretty good. Um, so maybe we may not have to worry about that anyway. Well, I mean, that was what Terranex did in the old days. So, yeah, it's still and, and now the black and, and now the black magic owns them. Who knows? So speaking of black magic there, didn't the uh, the pocket the pocket cinema camera get some new features yeah. added to it and i don't have one so i don't even know what they added but i have a bullet point list of um of uh i got some new stuff in black magic raw performance improvements for media composer and premiere cuda performance um yeah there's lots of new support for a pocket battery grip built in i mean this is this is just what's amazing about black magic honestly i mean you know, first of all, if you look at Resolve, people pay 300 bucks, and so far, every single upgrade has been completely free. Mm -hmm. And it then, does everything. <laughs> yeah, and now you get these cameras that actually, you know, just like you are saying with Apple, but you, uh, you could hold on to it for a couple, three years, and it just keeps getting better because they actually throw things in. And, and speaking of, you know, uh, experiences with Canon, I mean, I've done some firmware updates over the time, and sometimes they add some cool stuff, but for the most part, you wouldn't even know uh, that there's been a firmware update. Whereas with these Blackmagic things, it's like, wow, we got this whole new set of meters, a whole different magnification supports, all kinds of things. And uh, that's that's pretty impressive. Well, is that, well, that Blackmagic? Black... Go ahead, Gary. Go ahead, Scott. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, go ahead, Scott. Was, is that Blackmagic just being willing to, to do so much and give away so much? Or, is, or if you think about... Um, you know, the world of computational video and photography, our cameras are computers now, and the fact that you can upgrade software, you can add all this stuff later, should all the camera manufacturers, shouldn't they all be able to do similar stuff? That's what well, Blackmagic's they have, doing? They have, yeah, they have been. I mean, Aerie put raw, you know, Aerie put raw in the LF, I mean, the mini, 
And then the LF came out. I mean, they put Airy Raw in the Amira, which they said it would never do. They allowed it to, you know, to functionally shoot, you know, UHD in mm-hmm. the Amira. And that was a software upgrade. You're seeing that with Sony with frame rate increases on the Venice and, uh, you know, and how they're doing stuff, you know. And you think about it and, and pretty much everybody but Canon right now is doing amazing stuff on the software side. I mean, Red's the only company that doesn't really do software upgrades like that for their camera systems because their mm-hmm. hardware is pretty specific. But you look at what Aries doing, what Panasonic's doing, what Sony's been doing on on you know their their prosumer cameras and what they've been doing on Venice. It's pretty impressive. I'm waiting to see what they do on the FX9. I think there's a lot of potential in the FX9 for that because of the way they've designed the camera to be this firmware upgradable for a few years. Hmm. I will say, uh, you know, we did we did get screwed a little bit on the not screwed, but the original Blackmagic Ursus, uh, they obviously only had so much they could do with those. So they, the the next gens were getting all these amazing updates, and the poor old original Ursus well, we had two or three. That of brings up too. a real interesting point, Damien, because that's that's about the time when when Blackmagic realized their hardware had to be made better. I mean, when you talked about the original Ursa, you know, you go back to how a lot of their IO boxes were made and, you know, they were, they were soldering the, the, you know, the boards on and they weren't doing hard connectors on the boards for any of the IO ports. So you, you plug in an SDI port and it would just snap off after a while. And that's one of the things in the last, I'd say five to seven years that Blackmagic has really, really built solid, hard quality products again that have made me, you know, not be afraid to buy them. And, and that was one of my comments in the in the 4K or, you know Ultra Studio review, the 4K Mini Ultra Studio. That thing was built like a tank, and and I was really impressed in the build quality and how that you know every and it's like I got it and pushed on the connectors to try and get them to break and they wouldn't. I really gave mm-hmm. that a workout because I think it's going to be a, a really usable box. And it just surprised me that you know the quality of how they're building things has changed so much in the last five or six years. And, and you know, and, and, and to that point, you look at the, the, the foam cage that the, the Ursa, you know, mini Forest 0.6K G2 comes in and just a little, you know, the, the foam packaging that it comes in is really impressive. <laughs> Well, they're, they, you know, they're, they make it to be used again. Yeah, they, they make can, it to be used over and over again. The editor key, resolve editor keyboard. It's a, it is a solid piece of machinery, and I, th- you know, may, I, maybe they realize that if they want to dominate the market, they can't have the reputation of, of, of having, you know, I don't want to say sub like lower quality products than some of their competitors, and they just had to pretty much, I guess they just had to up their game, which they did. Well, and and you know, we all hate cheap keyboards. Um, I've, I've I've hated cheap keyboards my entire life. But do you like thousand dollar keyboards? No. <laughs> well, that's it. You know, it, it, actually, what I it does. Say, I, I I haven't I haven't worked on it, so I don't know. I I kind of cringe at paying more than two hundred bucks for a keyboard. <laughs> you know, it's it's not supposed to be that expensive. Even Spe- in the Apple. Speaking uh, speaking of those, I I, I know uh, Scott, you have a checkered history with. Uh, with Loop Deck on the review, but th- that new tool that just came out of it looks, just looks beautiful. I, I just want one well, just to y- program the buttons. Totally, and and I think you know the, we've got to start that one with the price because it's not a cheap piece of gear at five hundred and forty nine forty nine bucks. But one no. thing that reading over the specs of it that they they point out quite a few times is that the build quality is different. The button, you know, it's metal. You've got it's probably overall better construction than the Loop Deck, which I think is great because that was one you know. Um, little qualm a lot of people have had with the loop deck is it feel you know it's, pl- it's plastic it's a plastic thing and it feels you know it feels plastic and that's just you know remember the tangent wave it felt like a plastic thing because that's what it was it's made of plastic and they feel a different way now you see said checkered past I, I, I my loop deck <laughs> plus review was um it, and I, I one I'm really really excited about the loop deck CT CT stands for creative tool because yep. Their, the Loop Deck Plus was a, a, a photo um, a photo, app, photo tool, a photo color tool for working for, with photographers. And they tried to shoehorn that into an, an NLE. And I don't think it works very well. It's just not what it's made for. And, right. But the, the Loop Deck CT, they're making it you know, with this in mind. So I'm really excited to see... What it can do, and I thought about this, and I was watching the video for a while ago. It's, it's, you know, remember the old Shuttle Pro was, 
is a dial and some buttons, and it can be very useful if you, you know, learn how to use it and map it the way you work. And this is this almost feels like it is like a high, super high-end Shuttle Pro that if I can map it and do exactly what I want it to do, I think it's going to be a cool, uh, cool piece of hardware. I want to co comment about the price because I, one of the things that people complain, oh, it's, you know, it's $550 and all of that. And I look at that as if it saves me an hour a, a week, it only takes me 10 weeks to pay for that. Yeah. yeah you know, and, and, and if it takes me an hour a week, if I save an hour a week using that device, it, 10 weeks that device is paid for itself hands down. Yeah. There's no question about it. Yeah. You know, and, and you add a little time for programming and everything, and it's not about what it costs you, it's about what it saves you in the long run with speed and consistency and 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 the ability to do things, repeatability, you know, consistency, all of that stuff matters. And well, it's time. And and it doesn't these things aren't free to manufacture. It's and yeah. they're not free to build, um, which I guess is the same thing as manufacturing. They certainly weren't free to, to, free to, to design. Yeah. yeah. I mean this yeah. thing has um touch screen it has a touch screen on the dial itself you know at the, the top of the dial it's a touch is a, is a is a little now are those, are those buttons screen. at the top are they are they pressable or are they like touch i think it's a touch i think it's touch because i've seen the video on people swiping across them so uh, okay. um so oh, i do yeah. believe those are those are i would touch. i would kind of dig if you could actually press them a little bit because to me that i don't know that gives you a little bit more a little less accidental engagement of yeah. things but well, you know what? It's, Let me. It's hang off. on. As I'm looking at a close-up of the picture, it does have a lattice over the top, doesn't it? Yeah, like so you can probably actually. So maybe there is some feel play it a little there. Bit, yeah. Um, you know, it it's almost looks like what the that strip on the MacBooks was supposed to be. You know, this thing that gives you all this uh, <laughs> variable engagement of different tasks and things. And I, I'm curious. You know, I look at it and it's just I want one just because it looks so pretty. I didn't know if I would I, use it. I didn't know I, if it would sit on my shit desk. Out of mine. I love mine. Really? I, I, I was one of those things that I felt the same way you did in the beginning, but the places where I use it are not where I usually expect that. Things like web pages and things like that. But when I'm doing PowerPoint presentations or specifically keynote presentations, oh, the ability, the stuff that comes up about doing inserts and skip slide and everything else that's right down there has completely changed the way I work making presentations Interesting. because of that. And, and while I don't use it in any editing apps, I use it in all my writing and presentation apps. That's what you're one so, of the few that I've heard say they really like the, uh, the touch bar. It, it took me a long time to get used to it. I mean, almost a year. I, f I would fear, and I don't have a MacBook Pro. I have my old Thunderbolt MacBook Pro. I'm, I'm clinging to for the rest, as long as I can. Um, <laughs> that the, the elimination of my F keys in editing would just... Yeah. But, but more often than not, when I'm working on my MacBook Pro laptop, I bring along an external keyboard and use that instead. So maybe... That's true. Wouldn't be that big yeah, deal. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that. I actually it, work with my laptop closed most of the time. <laughs> my laptop, I, I, because I have a 4K, you know, Thunderbolt monitor on my desk, I actually clamshell mine and, and work on a keyboard mm. with a keyboard and a mouse on my 4K oh, yeah. display. Um, oh. Yeah, the, so the Loop Deck CT, new piece of hardware. The other new piece of hardware, and this will be our last topic of the night, um, is uh, a big one. It's huge. It is also from Apple, and that would be the what are the headphones pro? No, wait, what are they called? Earbuds iPod pro. iPod pro. Yeah, iPod. Yeah. Earbuds AirPods pro. pro. AirPods pro. AirPods <laughs> pro. Magic like you've never heard. Did Now, do these? is this a needed product in the world? The only thing I'm interested in them for is the noise canceling. Yeah, and that, that's, that's the I, thing, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm talking to you on a set of Bose noise canceling headphones right now because and, and they work and so well. Just, just yeah, as a pr price comparison, how much do those usually go for? They're pretty high. They're, they're right in the same area, right? They're right in the same range because I have the earbuds, not the whole headphones. So it's like I have the earbuds that do noise canceling, and they were three hundred dollars, you know, six years ago. Yeah. So, so this the, is actually not an unreasonable though. price, even no. right. And, and mean, it's the noise canceling technology that's really the advantage for these is the ability that that to do that. And then the adjustable earpieces. One of the things that I had problems with with my AirPods was that one ear canal is a different shape than the other, and I actually had to get silicone inserts to go off them to fit in, you know, so they fit in my ears. Whoa, that's what? what are, you, are you mutant? Yeah. Well, it means I can't uh, put them back in the charger easily. 
Well, the, back um, in the back in the day when I was a rock and roller, we we actually used to get uh, they inject silicon in your ears and oh, then yeah. old uh, hardcore musicians is what they all do. Yeah, oh yeah, it's, it's the set. only way to <laughs> keep your ears is to actually have that uh, have those specially made things, and uh, and they worked really well until my wife threw them away. Thinking there was something ooh, else when ooh, we got married. I I, I actually they have dirty? a set. Probably. <laughs> Probably well, wax believe it or not, believe it or not, the manufacturer, one of the big manufacturers of Sensophonics is based here in Chicago. And I had some made when I was working with rock bands, you know, in the two, early 2000s because I had to be on stage all the time. So I actually wore them for ear protection. And it was really interesting. But I, I lost one and called them up. And they said, oh, no, we have the molds. So they uh -huh. remade the one earpiece well, nice. for me and refixed them. Cool. They're expensive, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm really like 1200 bucks or something like that. Well, the band paid for them. The AirPods yeah. Pro are two fifty, and you can go and look at the website right now. You can get free engraving, so that's kind of nice. Yeah, it's actually like I've always thought the AirPods are an expensive accessory, but honestly, at two fifty with the noise cancellation, that's actually a reasonable price. I well, think. they're uh, was it like one thirty? Especially do a lot of traveling and planes and stuff. That yeah, makes a whole sense. right. Well, and not having to carry, I I always carry two sets of earbuds. I carry the the AirPods because they're much much more convenient to talk to somebody on the phone with. They are not. I mean, I, I poo-pooed them at first when I got mine. I really love them. I still think people just look like such... They're secondary <laughs> to the dorky looking of people wearing <laughs> VR headsets. AirPods right behind that as far as looking dorky. But they are so convenient, and they only sound pretty good for what you're doing, and, and they are, once again, convenient. And I, lo I, lo I love mine. I'll, I'll probably end up with a... I, I'm going to wait and hear some reports on how well the pros sound before I plunk down 250. But um, well, there's a, there's another place where machine learning can probably up the game with a firmware update too. That can probably oh, yeah. get better over time. Well, well what and, the and hell else are they going to do? They let tiny speaker speakers shoved in your ear. What are they going to update them to do? No, I just say they can actually get better at canceling. They can actually oh, kind of get. I see. Yeah, more oh, and, sappy. And, 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 and to go back, to loop back to the very beginning about all this stuff generates EM, you know, the Bluetooth time sync, the earbuds between your head. That's actually generating a syncing signal between the two devices across your brain stem. So think about that while you're doing it, too. Oh, yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah, that's, that's yeah we're slowly getting cooked. Wait till the oh, 5G man. kills us all, right? Oh, my gosh. Well, no. hey. <laughs> I've been Why? playing with 5G. It's kind of interesting to be able to see. You just start seeing 40 gigabits to your phone. It's kind of scary. Well, that's you guys have. Is Chicago one of the cities? Where Chicago's one of the test cities. I've been testing it, yeah. With what phone? Uh, a Google Pixel prototype. So is, is, so is it in, indeed faster? It's it's incredibly fast. The, the interesting thing is I bought a, a, um, a, a Wi-Fi, you know, a, a, a remote connection device to give me 5g wireless and then connect it to my like my ipad and everything but to be able to stream hdr content to my ipad from netflix and at, at ultra high resolutions that's been really the most interesting thing about high bandwidth because i have gigabit ethernet in my gigabit you know fiber in my office so i have a, a really good signal and you get used to the lack of compression on things like television and things like that so it's one of the things that i've noticed the most about having access to a 5g signal is just the quality of delivery to the devices is better cool well you know what that'll be uh, that'll be big news when it rolls out in mass and we'll talk about that whenever that happens in the next yeah. several years a couple um, of years yeah gentlemen thanks for uh right. joining in for the uh for our chat uh damien stay safe from the fires well, I'm, yes. I'm pretty pretty out of them so i'm good gary stay yeah, a lot of people a lot of, a lot of people are not and it's really scary yeah. so, but thank you sir some of the some of the pictures are just are just horrendous so everybody yeah definitely if you're listening That's to us out on the west coast uh keep keep safe all right gentlemen talk to you uh both soon have a good uh, rest of the week all right